Content warnings for this episode include the use of the word loco as a character's name, short discussion of sexual assault during the overview of the film, and a brief discussion of fat phobia. Greetings. You are listening to Horror Nerds at Church, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Joe, and I am your friendly neighborhood prophet. I am old, and no one heeds my warnings. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Pace, and I am the... So the special effects jumping out at you into your screen only if you're wearing glasses. If you're not, I just look really cheesy and so, fake. So, Pace, what you're telling me is your early 1980s 3D special effects. Yes, <laughs> I, I find that charming in a nostalgic way. <laughs> so, how have you been? What's been happening? Well, I, I'm, I'm okay, I guess. Uh, I, I took a nap the other day. <laughs> and when I woke up to put my glasses back on, one of the temples snapped off. <laughs> and I, I, I had just never had eyeglasses that just like fell apart in my hands like that. Uh, luckily, I have a backup pair. Uh, but I, I, um. I did have to go to the eye doctor, and I think um, my gla- my new glasses should be coming in within a matter of weeks. So I moved pretty quickly on that because uh, unlike with other things in life, eyeglasses, unfortunately, are things things I need to survive. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, for real. Oh, no, but um, it's interesting. Um, I picked a new style, so hopefully it'll be an interesting new new look for me. What about you? What's going on? Cool. Thankfully, my glasses my glasses are breaking, but they have not broken yet. But mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time. I've had these frames for six or seven years, so it's oh, time wow. to replace them. So yeah, I definitely yeah. need to do that, especially now that I have vision insurance. I should take mm-hmm. advantage of that. That's why I didn't, because we live mm-hmm. in the hellscape that is America, where we have to figure out how mm-hmm. to, whether or not we're going to pay bills or get eyewear. So... I ugh, ah, yush, No, just right. the hell, the hellscape of hell, of uh, healthcare in America. Ooh, huh, huh. Anyway, real. no one the would begrudge you. <laughs> exactly, no one would begrudge you for getting new eyeglasses at mm-hmm. seven years old because you know I think that's a typical turnaround for these sorts of things. By the way, those frames look really good on you. Uh, unfortunately, you. we don't we don't have a video component to our podcast, but <laughs> if you look at the picture, like any picture of me on my social media or even our podcast social media from the past 7 years, it is the same pair of glasses. So, it is very easy to see. But we should Instagram when both of us get our new glasses, we should add to our Instagram and other social media feeds since we talked about it on the show. Love it. We should definitely do that. And 
someday you and I should have a picture together. <laughs> I know. That would be like, lovely. One where I don't Photoshop you and me onto Blanche and Dorothy's head. I'm <laughs> Golden Girls. Anything anything else going on? Any announcements you wanted to share? Yeah. Um, two quick announcements. First is that mini-sodes will return in a few weeks. Uh, we already got a few submissions for that, so we're looking forward Ooh. to recording a few more mini-sodes. Um in the next few weeks. Uh, so email. So once again, mini sodes are the episodes where we um, take your real life church horror stories and read them on the show. So basically anything that involves supernatural or ghosts at church or just people being downright awful or horrific theology, any of those things, all that's good. Send it our way to horror nerds at church at gmail.com. Um, and we'll read those on the show. So um, I'm not. Qu- we haven't quite figured out what the format's going to be. If we're going to do one every other week or one a month or something, so we'll give you more information soon. But definitely um, send us those stories so we can start planning those out. And then the other thing is pay- our Patreon launches in October. Ooh, girl. Um, just in time for Halloween, and we're going to have some apparel. There, uh, we just entered into, well, we haven't signed anything yet, but I'm just going to say say it, is that um, Eugene Johnson, who is an artist, and he's also an editor, and he did a little bit of work in the film industry and stuff, and he's mm-hmm. a friend of the podcast, uh, he's going to be on an episode in September, we're excited for that, but he also is, um, we're partnering with him to do a little bit of special specialty merch they can only get from us so um that will that should go live in october as well with as well as um our patreon so keep keep um keep an eye out for that i know this episode is coming out i believe the first week of september so it should be a few in just a few weeks um to go before that stuff launches Dang, even I'm looking forward to all of this and I actually work on the show. <laughs> I know, right? I'm I'm excited. It is exciting. What about you? Do you have any announcements or anything else? Other than the uh the eyeglass thing? No. Life is beautiful. <laughs> I I don't want to be one of those unrealistically positive good vibes people, but <laughs> every now and then a day comes along and you think to yourself, it's nice to be alive. <laughs> right. I like those days. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so shall we um, start our our dive-in? Yep, yep. So today we are covering Friday the 13th, Part 3, 3D, directed by Steve Miner. Came out in 1982. So remember the this The year is- of my birth. Oh, hey. So this is your Friday the 13th film then. Apparently. um, But yeah, so this is... uh, The first one came out in 1980. Second one came out in 1981. This one comes out in 1982. So they are just like popping these out one after the other. And I'm I'm impressed. I mean, these don't look like student films. They don't look like sophisticated movies either. But, you know, they're they're not terrible for things that had a what? less than one year turnaround time. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and uh, Steve Miner came back to direct this one as well. Uh, and he was involved 
in part one, as I said. So if you're just tuning to this episode, um, just a quick recap. He was involved uh, in part one, but then he directed part two and part three. And so this was originally supposed to be kind of a bookend to the film that it was going to be a trilogy and this was this <laughs> entry was going to be the end of the trilogy sure sure so but of course um as the story often goes in these kind of long-running franchises mm. paramount saw all the money that they were getting back from this and was like let's just make another one and so they did Ka-ching. So yep what are your first memories of this film is this the first time you've seen it or have you seen it before you know? i think this is the first time I've seen it before, but the artwork is, is, I guess, for lack of a better word, also a dramatic word, but that's okay. I'm, que- I'm, I'm gay. I'm queer. <laughs> um, the artwork has been emblazoned in my head because uh, the Friday the 13th series was very popular back in the day. And so mm-hmm. when there was a new Friday the 13th, movie out available for rent at our friendly local neighborhood video rental shop. They always made sure to put the poster up and I'll always remember, you know, the, the outline of Jason and you know how you could see crystal Lake through him. Mm -hmm. So even if I hadn't exactly seen the movie back in the day, (laughs) the poster is in my head and I'm certainly aware of of the of the movie franchise this is something for the marketing and psychology folks to think about and anyone <laughs> else like us who you know who critiques capitalism young mm-hmm. minds retain things okay <laughs> what about yeah. you for me that was always the hellraiser in my local video shop they always had like a giant cutout of pinhead that oh my. for whatever reason was <laughs> is something that stuck with me for all these years but let's see um I don't know when the first time, like with all the Friday the 13th films, I know the first one I've seen, and the first one I had ever seen was Friday the 13th, or not Friday the 13th, it was Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, was the first one I saw. Final, quote unquote. Right. Um, But there were, but I've seen all of them at some point, you know, over the years. Uh, This one, though, for a long time has kind of been my favorite. It's really cheesy. But I just kind of love it. It kind of represents everything that I love about the golden age of slashers, where it's like you have Mm. this group of teens, you have no idea how they'd be friends in real life because (laughs) they're so like (laughs) despair in how they like personalities and everything, and they're all kind of thrown together. And it's just like, and you're just waiting for them all to die in various ways. And the character, like, for the first film and the second film, and we can talk about this as we get into our deep dive or whatever, but mm. the first and second film, like they do a point, they make a point to make the characters relatable and have backgrounds. Yeah. And even if they don't talk about their backgrounds, you kind of see like they give you clues to who these people are beyond just the movie. And then this one is like, we're just going to have a bunch of stock characters and watch them all die. And <laughs> right. It kind of well, is fun. Well, you bring up a really good point, you know, um, uh, as I've said before, it can be really easy to generalize these movies, but um, in watching the first three of the Friday, the 13th series, I found that I, I actually like a lot of the characters. I mean, 
I don't grow attached to them because we all know what happens in these sorts of movies. Um, but you know, for these kinds of movies, for what they are essentially body count movies, um, there's some effort into rounding out each character other, um, either from, you know, the script itself or mostly the actors. (laughs) I, I just, I'm not, I'm not too sure how much the script plays a role in these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, no, these are likable people. And I, I like the people in the, in this um, third sequel as well. They were, they were very disparate. Like I was thinking of, um, I'm forgetting the character's name, but I'm sure you'll bring him up during the deep dive. He was the one who was roommates with uh, the plus size nerdy guy. Mm, yeah yeah he he identified him as my roommate and he was in the beginning of the movie he's telling him just be yourself yeah you know and and you'll have fun and i thought to myself well that's so nice that you know these two obviously very different roommates with each uh, uh, who are different from each other would you know go on this adventure together you know like yeah uh, in real life, you would suspect that you know the more conventionally looking one, quote unquote, would have just ditched his other roommate for the weekend, yeah, having yeah. it away from him. But no, he invited him along. Sadly, to both of their detriment. But you know, <laughs> yeah. So that's Andy who invited his roommate Shelley. Yeah, and Shelley. one of the weird subplots in this is that it appears that Andy and Chris and Debbie are trying to hook up Shelley with Vera. Like as They're, like a blind date situation, but it's like there is no chemistry <laughs> there, and like so it's just one of those things. Like, are they, is this is this one of those like jokes like they're doing? Like, are they trying to like it's like look at you, Vera? We're we're bringing this um hot guy and stuff. Like uh, the jo- Shelly right. being the butt of the joke, or like I don't know. It just seems so weird and out of left field. I don't get it. Um, yeah, what this I whole mean, thing is it was. Not a surprise when Vera came out of the house, took took one look at Shelley, and was like, "Nah," yep, and, yep. and I and I felt bad for Shelley, but you know, you kind of expected that. Yeah, and I mean, Shelley's a little queer coded too. So was yes. he even straight? Who knows? Um, exactly. No one gave any consideration to that. What if Shelley was into Andy secretly? I would believe that. Um, but let's yes, see. Andy, uh, Andy, first twink that you've lusted after, isn't, isn't he? Because you, you're not into twinks. <laughs> yes. That, did, that's not your thing. I did say something along those lines as we were watching the movie. Did, 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 I, did I call you out? Is this going to be edited out of the episode? <laughs> no, it'll probably make it in because I don't give a fuck. So, um, just some background about the movie before we get into it. So, the earliest iteration of the script was going to follow Amy Steele, who was. Um, played Ginny, the um, final girl from the last movie. And she was basically going to end up in a psych hospital and Jason was going to follow her there. And um, Amy Steele declined to return. Had a good head on her shoulders, apparently. Yeah. And also that would have been very similar to Halloween 2, which also came out in 1982, if I remember correctly. So it's like, so I'm kind of glad they didn't go that direction. Um, But they... But this was originally going to be the final film. It's going to end the film in a trilogy with the poetic bookend of Pamela Voorhees coming out of the water, kind of like Jason came out of the water in the end of the first movie. Mm. Um, 
3D was beginning to make a comeback, particularly in horror. So this film was an early entry in that and also kind of kicked off the craze of having the third entries in a horror franchise being in 3D. So you had Jaws 3D and Amityville 3D and all that coming out. Oh, I see. I didn't realize that those were the third movies in their respective franchises. Yep. Uh, Which is, but all of them drop the cumbersome part three 3d like this one had to just being 3d right. Um, right paramount helped fund the development of a special type of 3d lens for the film and also sp- spent a substantial amount of money to ensure wide release for the film and theaters to make sure that the theaters were able to run because at this time of course you basically the 3d was effect was created by by filming two different film reels and then mm. projecting them simultaneously to create like a slightly off image, then your glasses would be polarized in different ways to mm-hmm. so each eye would only get one of the images to mm-hmm. basically make the film, uh, which is what creates that 3D effect. Um, and so in order to ensure that the- 3D, of course, had been around for decades, but kind of had fallen out of favor um, huh. and wasn't really used uh, since the fi- 1950s was kind of its first heyday. Um, so... And- Essentially, horror brought back this trend. Yes, exactly. Fascinating. Um, and so, uh, Paramount spent a substantial amount of money to make sure that the theaters had the technological capability to play 3D. Um, and so the film, and it was a gamble that paid off because the budget was two point two million, which in today's dollars is about twelve million. Mm-hmm. It made yeah. thirty six point seven million in returns, which in today's money is one hundred two million. So I mean, that's a wow. huge, huge profit. It's a lot of teenagers going to the movies to right. make out, or hopefully <laughs> to actually watch some part of the movie. I know, right? Uh, it was shot in California, so it was the first one not to be shot on the East Coast. Mm. And the barn and house were both built for the film. Um, Do you know why they relocated to my neck of the woods? Or was that I think just, just a thing that happened? Yeah, I think just cost-saving measures. They they yeah. built like they built it all on a um they built this entire set on like an existing movie owned set so it's like they mm. basically i think it was um a cost saving thing and then part four i think they shoot in texas so like at this point hmm. the franchise each entry is shot somewhere different so it's oh. jumps all over um gotcha. let's see this is also the film that has introduction of the hockey mask yes everybody claims like a role having a role as I'm the one who introduced it, but <laughs> the one that kind of seems to have the most consistency or consensus around it is that the 3d effects supervisor, Martin Sandoff was a hockey fan and had a Detroit Red Wings mask with him. And so that was the initial initial basis of like, Oh, this might work. Um, and then it, a custom mask was created for the film that was kind of supposedly modeled off of the Detroit Red Wings. mask. So our friend Martin here just went to work randomly with his hockey mask. Was he thinking maybe after I get off production, I'll just, you know, take in a nice hockey game with some of the boys. <laughs> right? Who knows? I, this is the murkiness of this. Like it doesn't really make sense. Any of yeah. the any of the stories that they say about the introduction of the mask, but I mean, if you're a hockey fan, it might make sense to carry around a goalie mask. I don't know. 
Is that is that what y'all do? <laughs> right, exactly. I, I I I do men who play sports, but not you know the actual sport. Anyway, uh, getting off topic once again because of my sex life. <laughs> uh, I w- I wonder how the Detroit Red Red Wings team itself feels about this uh this little legend. <laughs> right, and then of course you know, um, goalie masks look substantially different today. So now it's kind of one of those things where yeah the original look of a goalie mask is almost entirely thought of in association with Friday the 13th. Um, so it, even though it came from hockey, now it's like, now you see a hockey mask and you think, Oh, Jason, you don't Jason hockey mm-hmm. anymore, <laughs> which right. is funny. So um, interesting how culture ends up getting shaped by these sorts of things. Yep. Yep. So I guess it's time to walk through the movie. Um, Alrighty then. So Jason is played by Richard Booker. He is still alive. Uh, he murders store owners um, Harold with a cleaver and Edna with a knitting needle and steals some of their clothes. Um, and then it fast forwards to the next day, which is now Saturday the fourteenth. So this film does not take <laughs> the majority of this film does not take place on Friday the thirteenth. Details, <laughs> details. Right. Um. Chris, uh, played by Dana Kimmel, takes her friends with her to her parents' cabin at Crystal Lake. Her friends include Debbie, who is pregnant, and her boyfriend, Annie, played by Tracy Savage and Jeffrey Rogers. Prankster Shelley, played by Larry Zerner. Vera, played by Catherine Parks. And Potheads Chuck and Chili, played by David Cadams and Rachel Howard. Those two, I just, I did not understand those two characters. But go ahead. Right. This is like the introduction of the pothead character to the film too, which I kind of love. Um, Cause it now, now every single slasher movie has at least one pothead in it after this pretty much. Pace from now on, I would like you to call me chili. Chili. Yes. <laughs> just, just kidding. You can call me Fox then. <laughs> oh, okay. Like Fox, Fox Mulder from the X-Files. Yes. Or like the woman in the bike gang named Fox here. <laughs> That's Fox, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so while at the cabin, Chris meets up with her boyfriend, Rick, who is played by Paul Kratka, and he looks like he is legit 45. I do not believe for a second this man is a teenager. Well, you know, Pace, coming from a BIPOC such as myself, who also is in a BIPOC community, we often remark that non-BIPOCs tend to look a thousand years older than they really are. So, for all we know, this gentleman could have been a teenager. <laughs> oh my goodness! Like, I, I'm like, he looks like that could be her dad. Like, Ooh, oh, daddy my, it is so gr- it is so weird. Um, it was a little bit off putting, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, Chris and Rick go wander off to talk while Shelley and Vera go to town to pick up items from a store. And they accidentally anger a bike gang headed by Ali, um, played by Nick Savage, and his girlfriend Fox, Gloria Charles, and sidekick Loco, played by Kevin O'Brien. <laughs> I didn't even realize that the uh, the third fella had a name. <laughs> yep, Loco, the one who barks like a dog <laughs> later on. <laughs> This 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 side plot was so random. I'm like, okay, we're just gonna spend a little extra time at the grocery store then, right? Um, so the bike gang follows them to their cabin, where first they 
uh, siphon the gas out of Chris's van, which comes back later. Um, and then they explore the barn where Fox and Loco are both murdered with a pitchfork, and it's presumed that Ellie is killed off screen. Meanwhile, it's now getting dark. Shelly's playing pranks where he pretends to be killed, which annoys everyone. Vera goes to the lake (laughs) to get away from Shelly and sees who she thinks is Shelly as the man is wearing Shelly's hockey mask, and he approaches her with a spear gun. He then shoots her in the eye and kills her. Just perfect, perfect aim. I know. And that was one of the 3D effects that actually was, like, really good. Yeah. Like, because the arrow comes straight at the screen and right, um, yeah. it holds up pretty well. Uh, yeah, it kind of ma- mask. It masks the fact that, you know, Jason being undead has, like, weirdly keen aim. Right, right. Um, and could be an interior decorator. We talked about this in the previous Because <laughs> he has, he's very... Um, particular about how he places the bodies and stuff. He is. He is. Um, Andy and Debbie have sex, and then she goes off to shower. Debbie is showering while Andy is murdered by Jason. He's doing a handstand and is chopped in half from crotch down, which not fun. Um, and then he gets hidden and stuffed in the rafters. Uh, Debbie is then killed with a knife through the back as she goes to bed and notices that blood is dripping down from the rafters. Then the power goes out. Chuck goes to fix it and is electrocuted at the fuse box. And Chili is killed with a hot poker being stabbed through her. Uh, Rick is just disgusting this whole time, pressuring Chris into having sex. But she keeps saying no. And then she tells a story about how she was almost sexually assaulted by Jason in the wilderness. Like it strongly implies that she was. And watching the Crystal Lake memory documentary, it says like that was the original intent was to make it even more mm, likely that mm-hmm. he sexually assaulted her. But then the actress refused um, for that to be like explicitly named. So they just kind of imply it. But it does bring a good question. Like if Jason is being motivated by killing people for having sex, like it doesn't make s- it's not quite consistent with the character to have him then going out and sexually assaulting people. But as we know from Republicans, they certainly like to regulate sex and sexually assault people. So maybe it's not that inconsistent. You know what, Pace? Everything was going so well. And then you introduced the Republicans, the real horror, into our episode. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe maybe this is proof that Jason is a Republican. Maybe he voted for Reagan. Oh, my. Please, please do not insult Jason's existence. Hasn't he been through enough? I mean, they (laughs) let him drown when he was six years old. (laughs) Yep. So anyway, yeah, so she was... um, almost raped, I guess, by Jason in the wilderness as a younger person. And so she's like recounting this memory to Rick as like why she doesn't want to have sex with him. Like she needs an excuse, but Rick is still being kind of a jerk about it. (laughs) Yeah, well, they all are. Yep. They return to the cabin and Shelly is found murdered with his throat slash. So he was killed off screen, sadly. Uh, But they think it's a joke. Like that's the whole point is they're like, oh, it's a joke. Um, he's just playing around again. Um, then Rick's skull is crushed by Jason and his eye pops out. And that's one of the effects that doesn't work because you can see the string, the wire that the eye is on. Um, <laughs> it was entertaining to watch and how awful it was. Yep. 
Uh, Jason then starts chasing Chris, who first goes to the van, but it's now out of gas, of course, because the bike gang. Chris then escapes to the barn, gets in the rafters, and then hits Jason with a shovel. When he follows her up there, he then is hanged from a rope. Chris thinks he's dead, goes to investigate, but he's still alive. Allie jumps out, who somehow was alive this whole time, and I guess just hiding out in the barn. Um, but then he gets a machete from Jason. Chris then h- hits Jason in the head with an axe, seemingly killing him see i thought i really did think ali was dead because when jason stood over his body initially he was hacking at it so i was like okay well i guess that's the end of him um but you know good good for ali for bouncing back if only to be killed for real i think there i think there's a there's a metaphor for life in in that (laughs) yep right right (laughs) I love it. Well, let's see. Uh, Chris then, so Jason is presumably dead with an axe to the head. Chris then goes into a canoe in the lake. What is with these people like killing off the <laughs> serial killer then just hopping into a canoe first thing? I don't understand. It, it, it must be a relaxation technique of some kind. <laughs> must be. And while she's in the lake, she dreams Pamela Voorhees is jumping up and pulls her into the lake in a repeat from a twist of the first film but Mm -hmm. once again it's revealed to be a dream as chris is being escorted away from the house by police and emts and it's clear she's having some sort of nervous breakdown makes sense uh jason is still laying presumably dead at the barn and then the credits roll and that's the it of that's the end of the franchise we never heard from friday the 13th ever again right just perfect how it ends so poetically it's wonderful it's it's i think the real horror is in how that's a patent lie (laughs) (laughs) it 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 has its own the franchise has its own life much like jason does but you know i like i like what they did with um with chris going into the canoe uh it um, it reminds me of what uh, Doctor Richard Lindsay would point out is a literary technique in in the Bible, um, with echoing and and calling back of previous similar events. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of that, and Steve Miner, as you said before, is a pretty skillful um, filmmaker. But the thing that as as I was watching the documentary, Camp Chris. Uh, Crystal Lake memories about the making of these films. Like apparently this process to produce 3d was so painstaking that like every mm-hmm. shot would take twice as long. Cause you had to get it exactly right, right. for the stuff yeah. to head toward the camera in the right way. And right. so that um, a lot of the people being interviewed who are in the making of this film were saying that like, it's really hard to act when you have to do the same scene. Like, you have to hit the exact mark in the exact time. So it's like, so some people might criticize kind of the acting of this film, but like, I I think there's definitely something to be said about like making a film like this in this early kind of 3d technology where you're still creating a 3d effects with practical effects. You kind of are stuck with how within certain parameters of how to do that doesn't leave much room for creativity on the part of the actors, but the filmmakers certainly use a lot of creativity here, as you can see. Well, for this movie stuff, right. For this movie, the 3d was the gimmick and the gimmick took center stage. And uh, Mm -hmm. according to what uh, 
the trivia I read online says, um, as you said, the actors basically gave up acting because they wanted to get the 3D shot. They wanted to be able to use the uh, the special effect. The most, um, I guess, hilarious tri- piece of trivia that I read was that Larry Zerner, who plays Shelley, mm-hmm. uh, he, he says that the scene where he has to throw the wallet at the bike gang was filmed 50 times. Yeah, something like that. I love My it. Goodness gracious. Uh so uh, you've, you've even mentioning Pace uh, this documentary called Crystal Lake Memories. Where can one watch that? Um, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. There's also it's based off a book, and you can get the book um, on wherever hmm. you get books, like at a bookstore. Books are obviously, yeah. but it's also like ebook form. I have it on my Kindle. But the documentary okay. is free to view if you have AMC Plus or Shutter. Uh, oh. Shutter is part of AMC Plus, so either if you have either one of right. those, you should be able to watch the documentary. I do have Shutter, which is part of AMC Plus, which I subscribe to for this podcast. And right. if the if the AMC Plus people are listening, Pace and I would welcome a complimentary subscription. I know, right? <laughs> if only. Um, that would be amazing, though. But like another. There are two more documentaries on there of, that we will cover for season three of our podcast. I'm sure when we do um, Friday, uh, Friday thirteenth. That's what we're doing this season. When we do Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. they have um, Never Sleep Again. I think is the one documentary which covers the making of the entire franchise, similar to Crystal Lake Memories. And then they have uh, Scream Queen, all about the second entry of the franchise. Mm. So we we'll definitely need to cover those documentaries next season. I'm yeah, those are both on sure. Shutter too. That's why I brought up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm also looking forward to. Um, the implication there in what you said, Pace, that our podcast is going to continue in perpetuity, which yes. is, which is, which is great. I, I, I don't know about you, Pace, but I would like to continue co-hosting this podcast long after I am beyond the grave. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if there are any vampires out there who want to sire us so we can be immortal and just keep doing this podcast forever. Exactly. We are, and and this is a good time to do it. You know, we are in our late thirties. You know, it's not going to be an awkward siring a la Kirsten Dunst an interview with the vampire. Oh my right. goodness, that poor that poor girl. That's a movie we should cover at some point. See I again. Want to. I love that movie. It's so good. I love that. I love that movie too. So yes, there we have no choice, y'all, but to keep this podcast going forever so we're looking for two things number one vampires to sire me and pace and number two funding yes the (laughs) The ingredients for every successful podcast the funding part launching in october with our patreon just a reminder (laughs) of that but also um we might start we've been in the talks about how to get some funding at least to break even because it like, like i said before um, it costs it costs us money to make the podcast, so at very least we like it to even out. And if we can get anything back, that'd be even better. But yeah. um, uh, one of the ways to do that, of course, would be with the Patreon or buying our merch when that stuff launches. Right. But something else we were thinking about doing is doing ads in the podcast, but we are kind of a little bit reluctant to do that. Be- so mm. we're just our. I would love to have some audience feedback about like what do you think? Like what would that be? 
a detriment to you listening to our podcast if we have lots of ads or not. I don't know. Um, right. But usually, usually we most podcasts just have like three ad spots: one in the beginning, one at the end, and one in the middle. Yeah. And we'll probably do something similar if we do that. So, and I, I'm, I mean, you know, uh, the issue of ads in our podcast is definitely something we're going to have to have meetings about. Uh, but one good thing about ads and podcasts is that. Uh, if you're creative enough, you can just kind of seamlessly put them into the podcast and like they don't, you know, they don't stick out. You know, this podcast is brought to you by Crystal Lake Enterprises, working to reimagine what it's like to have a vacation and a haunted <laughs> lake. Yes, I love it. <laughs> that That's not a real company, y'all. Just putting that out there. Although I think Crystal Springs should rebrand their water as Crystal Lake. And well, just have I mean, that sign. <laughs> the real horror there is that they're, you know, taking water and reselling it that should be free to drink anyway. But totally right. different podcast. Totally different podcast. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, theological deep dive. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Are you? I. I am. I am. Sure. Um. Uh, would you like to go, friend? Sure. Um, so the first, these movies have leave a lot to be desired as far as like depth to them. I want, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, dear, but we're getting breaking news and this production note from our dear Matt, who says that Crystal Lake Enterprises is indeed a real LLC in Texas. My apologies to Crystal Lake Enterprises in Texas. I... I I make no assumptions about whether or not you own a haunted lake. If you want to sponsor us, though, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take your money. Um, Amen. So, uh, yeah, but the first, the the Friday the Thirteenth uh, franchise is kind of known as being like the bare bones franchise. Like, there's not much depth to them, so it's kind of hard to pull out the level of depth we have with some of the other films this will Uh change because part four uh is really where where we get some new lore being introduced and then part five and part six we can there's all sorts of fun stuff we can go into but for these first three parts it's been a little bit like pulling teeth to come up with what to talk about uh one thing I mentioned last week was the Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces and kind of the architecture sure. um, of characters and stories. So just keeping that in mind as we go through these, as they all kind of start to sh- like the Friday the 13th, they stumble on in the very first film, a very easy go-to formula. Basically let's get these, youth let's isolate them and let's have the killer right. kill them one by one and then um it's easily reproduced in all the franchises that come i mean all the entries of the franchise that come after well at least at least one element of joseph campbell that i would i would apply to uh these movies is that element of going on an adventure right i mean the setup yeah. is always the same these kids are wanting to get away and have a good time. Although, you know, Mr. Campbell probably did not anticipate that there would be an undead man coming out from the lake to murder everyone in the middle of their good time. (laughs) Still at this point, I just have to keep reminding everyone he's not undead yet at this point. He's still human. He becomes undead in part six. 
we will talk about when we get there. But yes. Best. Important. Best. Thank you for the reminder. Right now, he is just an incredibly strong man with a lot of stamina, I guess, who he's, can keep getting up after getting knocked down. He's 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 persistent, and he wants his point to come across, no matter how violently he does it. He is a cis white man to the max. Yes. And <laughs> that es- that escalated. And his point being a machete or a kitchen blade, depending on the movie. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. I. But I also think I wonder if so. We talk about the hero's journey being being kind of the role, uh, being what Joseph Campbell really brought up, like this kind of archetype of the hero's journey. And I just want to say that. Um, Jason very quickly becomes the star of the franchise. Uh, And so Jason, in a sense, becomes almost the protagonist. And so you're rooting for Jason as he's going. Like, you want to see how Jason kills off the people in new and creative ways. So, like, that's why you're going to a movie. You're not going because you care about the kids who are being killed. Like, the kids just become fodder, especially as the series goes on. And so Mm -hmm. you're more excited to follow Jason on his journey. And so really what's interesting about this is that if you look at the archetypes of the hero's journey is how many of those Jace, Jason starts to feel, uh, starts to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just, beca- it to me, it just becomes very, uh, so you have the call to adventure, which is kind of, and supernatural aid are kind of the, beginning parts of the hero's journey you think of star wars basically is george lucas model star wars off of campbell so it really clearly follows this um so you have luke skywalker getting called to an adventure you have the supernatural aid with the force and you have this guardian who um is kind of his mentor and helper figure um and so that figure in the the star wars movie is obi-wan kenobi and then of course that character always needs to die or get out of the story somehow so that way the hero can (laughs) kind of find their own way and um basically is able to come into their own and transform into the hero that they're supposed to be and so we see this with jason if you think of like the this supernatural ability to just have this to survive the drowning to survive all the killing attempts against him like there's clearly something extraordinary about him even though he's not undead at this point he's still just a living human supposedly but he stills able to yeah. coming back you have his mother calling him to these murders um and from beyond the grave kind of so it's like so she but she gets killed in the first film and that's kind of what launches his own attacks and revenge and parts two right and so it so we kind of get this like anti-heroes journey in jason or um and it's just very interesting too, especially when Jason does in fact die in part four and is actually dead in part four and part five, he's still dead. And then part six, mm. he gets resurrected, which is also kind of part of that trope that Joseph Campbell talks talks about is that kind of death and resurrection theme. And of course, we, t- we t- talked a little bit last week about problematizing that with Campbell because Campbell is very clearly like a prioritizing this kind of Christian myth as like the, the, um, kind of like highest or best articulation. Mm -hmm. This is the story of Jesus. And so, so that's not 
exactly true and it's you're kind of missing a lot of the nuance if you do it in that and it's so it's kind of some of the comparative work even today with comparative theology and stuff it's just it's difficult to try to preserve nuance and stuff when you're doing the comparative work and that's something that people need to kind of keep in mind to make sure you're not like uh culturally appropriating or taking stuff out of its context but leaving it in its context so you get a fuller picture um but that said though like it is clear to me like how much joseph campbell really is onto something though in the ways in which a lot of human stories kind of follow very similar patterns and so when we start to see jason evolve from being the villain of the film which he clearly is in parts two and three to becoming more and more sympathetic we see in part four and then kind of becoming the hero of the franchise in part six through the end when you're you go to the movie to see jason you're not going to see the the main character whoever that is right it's like jason is what's drawing to the theater so it's just interesting to kind of keep that in mind um these archetypes in mind as we uh move through the film and then the other thing that i'm going to talk about is renee gerard and scapegoating i promise Mm. we'll talk about that i'm not going to go into that this week um but just know that that's going to come back too what about you joe what do you have well, I, I love your explanation here because it uh, it reminds me of the work of Dr. Richard Lindsay, who was you know one of our guests on this show and who was a professor of mine, and he studies the intersection of theology and pop culture, and you know so many elements of um, of literature in general and storytelling in general are mirrored in, as you said, Pace, in holy Christian scriptures. Uh, so uh, I loved your ex- your theological deep dive for the simple fact that it just reminded me of being in one of Dr. Lindsay's classes. Uh, that, being, that being said, there's one thing I want to point out is that we should be careful um, when using Joseph Campbell. I mean, He's made some great observations and scholarly critiques and the like, but we should also be careful to not imply that he he discovered anything. I don't I don't want people oh, to sure. think that yeah. I don't want people to think that he discovered that um, you know, all all human stories have been using this the same thing. I mean, I'm just imagining what an indigenous person from say the African continent would respond to, you know, Joseph Campbell and, and be all like, well, yeah, we've been doing that for centuries. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Campbell is very much a, this whole idea of there being this monomyth, which is kind of the Mm -hmm. word Campbell uses is just categorically wrong. And so there is no such thing as like one narrative and that this has been, and this is Campbell's kind of coming out of uh, this kind of structuralist understanding of literature. And then we get right. people like Foucault right. and Derrida who, this is going way off topic, but who really problematize this notion that you can have this one kind of, Oh yeah singular mythos and that everything fits into this kind of meta narrative in a consistent way and um so a lot of postmodernism um especially postmodernism that is done with an eye or coming out of like this 
post-colonialist understanding right. of it is really critical of any sort of claim that says uh, there is one kind of singular story that everything fits into. Um, right. So Campbell is really bad uh, in that sense. And also very, it, 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 it um, is very kind of, patronizing and very colonialist in and of itself as you were saying mm-hmm. joe exactly right is for a white person to come and say your myths aren't really what you think they're about they're actually about mm-hmm. the other thing and so mm-hmm. that so that's something that i'm glad you brought up so we can be very clear that we are not saying i am not saying that this is what this is a good thing i'm just saying that within this kind of con um joseph campbell's framework that he uh, is using to analyze myth. Um, this story, um, because this is a very Western story and Joseph Campbell is a Western mm-hmm. person, this story mm-hmm. really truly does fit into these archetypes in a interesting way um, where you have the antagonist who kind of is following the her- hero's journey as opposed to the protagonist. So, Well, I- I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Derrida. Um, and I don't think that's entirely off topic at all because his scholarship was pretty much based, um, in my view, on taking a sledgehammer and shattering that grand narrative uh, ideal um, because Derrida was about all about the the nuances that distinguish, you know, us from one another, you know, subject and object. Um, uh, Just think of what, just think of his, um, one or more famous teachings, you know, the, the two, the two spellings of difference that he has. And which is, which is sort of like, (laughs) which is a valid uh, scholarship, concept scholarly yeah. concept but it's also um a snarkiness yeah and in, in saying you know pay attention to nuance yep difference and so so it's french of course and so you have difference and mm-hmm. difference and in english is basically saying to the word difference how two words have different meanings even if they're synonyms yep. and yet their meaning is derived from inferring the meaning of the other. So it defers its meaning. So that's where that term comes from. So long yeah. story short is like freedom and liberty. Liberty, you get, mm. if you define liberty using the word freedom, you're deferring liberty's meaning to freedom. And yet they're two different words. So there is nuance there. That means the words themselves have different meanings, yet we can only right. understand their meaning through other words so our entire categorization of human understanding and knowledge is based on these words which we cannot actually define because they're define the act of defining the word is deferring its meaning onto other words and so that Mm -hmm. becomes derrida's project of deconstruction which is basically Mm -hmm. the difference in terms is that, that di- difference is what kind of starts to build those, uh, create those cracks from which the structure eventually falls down. Um, mm-hmm. For our audience, not for Joe. I know Joe knows all this, but um, in case our audience is wondering, what the hell are you all talking about? <laughs> so, yeah. So sorry, well, sorry, Joe. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to give a little bit of background for our audience in case they're like, "What are you talking about?" These two words. You, you are, 
you're absolutely absolutely on point. And I would even argue uh, that our theological deep dives, uh, which you know, is a conceit of our podcast, right? We're really doing this because we like horror movies and we want to talk about it. But I would also argue that we could go, um, you know, one step um, above and and uh, say that uh, a theological perspective could probably make the case for horror movies. If you'll remember mm -hmm. in the previous episode, you know, I was saying that, uh, we should be careful to not just lump all of these slasher movies together and say, oh, those kinds of movies, right? Because, you know, as we've been reviewing them, you know, they really do have their own individual character um, and, and, their, and their own nuances. So um, I like the theological perspective uh, for that purpose, uh, for pulling out what what each seemingly similar movie to one another has to say uniquely about mm -hmm. the human experience. Um, and so for my, my theological deep dive, um, I guess is more classic, more conventional. <laughs> um, I've been thinking a lot about the good old gospel of Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, whoever, you know, does helps the least of these is helping me. Um, and um, in my Christian tradition, Roman Catholicism, we use that uh, scripture as the basis of our theological concept known as preferential option for the poor. Um, where the poor, it, the words, the poor is, a blanket term, really, for you know anyone who's vulnerable, anyone who's in the margins. At least that's how I interpret it, and that's how I myself apply that. Um, and so, the first three movies of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, I think, are an excellent example <laughs> of preferential option for the poor. Um, not, <laughs> um, it's not the people aren't doing what they should be doing for the least. <laughs> um, and, you know, clearly we have the first, the first person who is marginalized, you know, according to the story um, and popular culture is Jason, right? Mm -hmm. um, his, his backstory is he drowned at six years old and no one helped him. Uh, I, I, and, and, um, it's unclear whether no one, anyone knew that he was in the lake or not, but from Pamela's um, interpretation of the events that um, there must've been some awareness or it was negligence on the part of the camp counselors who, you know, were, you know, having sex and uh, well, having sex. That's, that was Pamela's whole, whole critique was that you all were getting down and dirty and being horny while my son was drowning. So, you know, for me there, there's a commentary, not in the sex itself, but in terms of the counselors were put in charge of, you know, um, uh, everyone who was at their camp, including this little six-year-old boy, they decided to like check out of their responsibilities for a moment. And then we get this terrible consequence of a life um, that ended at six years old. And then as we can see from the subsequent movies in the franchise, there are consequences to that. 
Granted, these are cinematic horror movie <laughs> consequences, you know, a, 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 an adult slasher who will not seemingly die. But the parallel is there. You know, if, if we don't if we don't help out people in the margins, it, it is an ongoing problem for the betterment of our society. We are, I would even argue and articulate and say that we are all trapped in our own horror movie franchise because, you know, the killer keeps coming at us and the killer is those people we haven't helped. Those terrible circumstances and conditions of the human experience that we have not done enough work to correct. And, you know, it's, those are just going to keep coming at us uh, yeah. worse than, a, worse than a machete. Uh, you know, we got to keep, we got to keep doing the good work, um, you know, which, you know, has been, um, which has been, uh, I guess, minimized now, you know, uh, by people who are against this kind of work as doing as, as being a social justice warrior. But you know what? I wear that badge proudly. I am a social justice warrior in the vein of, um, a horny teenage kid trying to survive a slasher. <laughs> that's, that's the, that is me. Um, yeah. and I, I, I wear that badge proudly. I want to make it to the next movie. And mm -hmm. the way I, the way I do it is by helping by save it, you know, helping to save the least. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot that that's what I think we're getting from the first three movies. And in Friday, the 13th part three, um, we see we see that um, that point uh, kind of amplified, you know, with uh, with the character of Shelley. Um, and, uh, I I really liked the character of Shelley actually. Uh, like he was just doing. There there are a couple of things going on with Shelley. Number one, he's just doing his own thing, right? And he seems to really be into it. Like he likes these weird little things that he does. Um, even though, you know, the others don't receive it very well. But you you take away the peer pressure, right, of being a teenager. Um, and what you have left is this kid, Shelly, who is perfectly happy being being weird and and, yeah. and staging like a fake killing and 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 this and that. Well um it's really interesting with Shelly too, because like the film goes out of its way to describe how he is supposed to not be attractive he's kind of he like right. he makes a statement about like if you had a face like mine would you be interested in me or something right. like that and it's like but he first of all the actor um steve or what's his last name zerner or something of that nature Le it was larry 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 zerner. larry zerner that's what it was larry zerner today looks pretty attractive so he definitely right. blew it up but uh-huh but like, and he's a successful attorney yeah, yeah. So I mean, wow. Give me some money, Daddy. Come on, be my sugar daddy, Larry. Uh, but anyway, that, regardless, that escalated, right? <laughs> he, he. I don't know. It's just you know, like you're saying, like we were saying earlier. There's a lot of queerness to that character and how he kind of does his own thing. But at the same time, he also the movie makes him seem like so he's supposed to be ugly, but he's not. Like he's just yeah, attractive. He's he's a little bit over overweight to use that term. I don't like that term. Like, but he's a little fat, you know. I'm using it in a rec reclaimed way, but still, like, 
I would say more straight size than Absolutely. I um, to yeah. use the, those kind of terms out of the um, fat liberation movement. So straight size, meaning like basically what people think is a healthy weight um, so right. closer to that than what, um, than, than not. And yet it's like, they, they make it seem like he's some like, massively disgusting hideous person who's just has yep. no no one can be desire find desire in him but it's like that's not at all what's going on i mean, right and uh i also i also want to ask a clarifying question uh going back to the deep dive you did did you say that the one who got the arrow through her eye was was vera i don't think that was vera um, the one who got the arrow through the eye, it was Vera. Yeah, because she goes out to the lake, um, and he Shelly surprises her wearing the dive suit and the harpoon and stuff, and she, oh, she gets mad at him. Okay. So he goes back inside. She's sitting on the dock and sees that she still has his wallet from earlier, and sees that there's a picture of him with his mom or something in there, and like right. that alone makes her like be more sympathetic to him because he likes his mom. I don't know. That that makes no sense well, <laughs> to me. I I I don't know. I think I'm remembering it differently. Vera died later in the movie. It was it was her and the um one of the stoner people. Um Vera didn't like Shelley at all, but there was another girl who was starting to develop feelings for no, him. That was Vera. Um, Chuck and Chili are the stoner people who are paired off. And Chuck, really, so, okay. Yeah, Vera went with Shelly to the uh, convenience store when he stands up against the motorcycle gang. Is when she first starts to think, "Oh, maybe you're not too bad." And then right. it, when she's on the dock by herself, looking through his wallet, which she still had from earlier at the <laughs> convenience right. store, that she sees that picture and is like, "Oh, maybe he's a good guy." Um, yeah, so so there's this weird subplot going on. I'm not quite sure what it is between those two. <laughs> so wait, are you are you sure? <laughs> because okay, so we remember we di- remember how um, I was shocked that we didn't see Shelley's death. It happened yes. off screen, but it was because of a gimmick that was yes. really cool later on. So he shows up with his neck slashed. Yes, who is the who's the girl who doesn't believe who thinks he's playing? That is Chili. That's chilly. Oh, yeah. Okay, I got and then them. she gets okay. stabbed with the fire poker shortly after. Okay. Okay. Cool. Thank you, Pace, and thank you, audience, for putting up with my clarifying uh, needs. Because the point I wanted to make about Vera and and Shelley uh, is that it's interesting that Vera is developing you know some kind of affection for him because it's a commentary on how it wasn't normalized to have feelings for someone who is in the shape of Shelley right i uh it's it's just do- it, it just over the course of the movie it just sorts of dawn sort of dawns on her that you know Shelley could be a cool person i i started to think about this in um in the scene where they were both hanging out together in the living room and you know Shelley basically says he wants to have sex with her and vera is like no 
Um, or I don't think she said no. I think she said she was going to go for a walk and think about it. And then she came back and that, um, later. And then, but when she leaves to take her walk, you know, Shelly, having been written as a dejected white male who didn't get the sex he wanted, mutters under his breath, bitch. Um, but then Vera comes back. And then, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, they take a little walk. You know, and then they start, you know, they start chatting and it's really sweet. And then, as you said, again, you know, she starts looking affectionately through his wallet. And what I'm seeing here is a commentary on how unfortunate it is in our society that that um, it's like you almost have to have permission to look to have feelings for someone who doesn't look conventional. Yeah. And, And it's almost like as if that has to be a huge, a huge leap, you know, by, by doing that. And I, I wish it were more normalized to do that. And I wish it wasn't venerated as, Oh, pretty and beautiful Vera likes fat Shelly. I know. And so there's a lot of, I, there's a lot that's also problematic from that, from like an incel kind of point of view, like basically mm-hmm. like you can be this kind of a jerk. Cause Shelly, is kind of a jerk like he's weird right. and he's doing his own thing but he's also kind of being rude and kind of mean like he calls her a bitch for not returning his affection right. like, that's just not appropriate yeah. and yet she starts falling for him so it kind of gives into this trope like if a guy is just like it doesn't matter what a guy looks like it's matters what's in his heart and so this drop dead bombshell of a girl will fall in love with even the ugliest guy as long as he has a good heart and then it's like but we always see it play out in film and narrative where it's like the attractive girl is the one who changes her perception, not mm. like like Beauty and the Beast. You have an attractive woman who changes her perception about what this person got man's appearances on the outside. Very and it's true. always that as opposed to very, it's not always that way, but very rarely in film do we see a man who even looks like Shelly, like, why does it, like, I could say joking, it's like, shoot in your own league, like, but instead, <laughs> it's like, why Why are we, why do we get this trope of, like, we don't see this, um, this fit, attractive, stereotypically attract, conventionally attractive man going after this, um, plus size woman you know like it's it's always right. going to be through the male lens of like mm, this, yes how can we get this attractive woman to fall in love with a guy that looks like us as opposed to how can right. we get this as opposed to being a commentary on that not to say that what you said isn't true because i think that's also part of it is like it, it's very it, we need that permission to Mm-hmm. find people attractive beyond conventional mm-hmm. ways and yet why is it that hollywood always tells that story in this particular way of an attractive woman falling for an unattractive man and that's always right. the trope it falls into it's never it deviates from that absolutely uh, absolutely no that's so that is so on point um, but you know, returning returning a little bit back to what um, I was saying about Matthew twenty five, um, there, in what Jesus is saying there, there's 
there is not just a commandment, you know, to do this and therefore you honor me, but you know, there's, there's Jesus, I think is appealing to a sort of altruism there to say, you know, you have it in you to do good. So do good. And when you do good, when you, you know, help the least, um, I, I respect you and you will get eternal life, blah, 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 blah. Right. Uh, what I'm what I'm seeing in the first three movies, though, is the human connection tends to be transactional. Let's have sex, you know. Let's do pot, um, and the need for, I guess, a, an authentic friendship really rests in the fact that somehow they all convince each other to go out to the lake together. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think I think I think the best example of a non-transactional relationship was uh what was it was it in the sequel where you know that that gal who was uh was uh was hitchhiking her way to crystal lake mm-hmm. yeah um in the first you know, she, the first one i think yeah in the first yeah in the in the very first movie you know because uh she's got a gig to work in the kitchen mm-hmm. serving um inner city kids she tells her she tells the story herself and um and so that alone you know i, I think really speaks to what matthew 2540 was about but also in the way she acts it out like she's excited to go to this job right mm-hmm. she's so excited that she's going to take whatever ride comes along and yeah, as you said before, as you said, when we were screening the movie, you know, the times are different back then, but maybe that's a good observation to make, not just to critique it and mm-hmm. say, well, back then they did that. And that was silly. No, back then they did that because society in general still had no reasons for us to distrust each other the way we do now. Uh, so that's that's what that's what I would argue about that, and because she was um, because that character was a good example in my argument of a non transactional relationship. What happened to her? She died. Yep. Well, that's interesting in these films is that, especially the earlier ones, like the deaths don't seem to be as related to actions until we get later on in the franchise, then it's like a more one-to-one correspondence, which is kind of interesting evolution of slashers. But it also makes me think of our first few episodes on Halloween in season one, Mm -hmm. when we were talking about the importance of community and also kind of the, how we are, how you are, um, the Halloween franchise is kind of picking up on that societal fears of like, terror can be lurking in the suburbs and you have mm-hmm. like in the news you have people like the btk killer and you have like the right. golden um the oh what is his name the the golden state killer yeah, the golden state killer and stuff like that right. who are killing people in the suburbs and so that mm-hmm. kind of creating that atmosphere that halloween was born out of and i mean we always get like scariness in the woods but you know here we have the these people coming together to do something like look after children you know these inner city kids help them and stuff like that and yet it's and they're trying to build community as counselors and stuff and that is where jason attacks or pamela in the first movie and then in this movie 
we scratch all that and we just have a group of kids going up to a weekend house to celebrate <laughs> for something, mm-hmm. I guess. It doesn't even really mm-hmm. say why they go to up to um Chris's house for the weekend. Does it? Like are they just going for a week? Like it doesn't really say, does it? Mm, I don't think so. So but wait, no no, Chris wait, Chris was the one who said that uh she encountered was she the one who encountered Jason before? Yes. Yeah, so I think I think the reason for going up there was so she could what confront her her fear. And it looked like she yeah. and you know the 40-year-old teenager <laughs> Rick, yeah. Were uh were in the process of uh I don't know, re- remodeling that house. Like they were doing some kind of work with it. Well, yeah, they it, it's not clear this is one of those plots where it leaves more oh more questions than it answers and that's okay i'm not yeah. saying that that's bad i i yeah. don't need everything in the plot in a neatly wrapped package but oh sure that is chris's motivation for going up there and it seems that rick's motivation to go there is to is solely to have sex mm-hmm. with chris which is gross um but then it's like why are they, why is everybody else up there? Like if Chris is going to do this traumatic thing, bring your best friend, maybe bring your boyfriend, I don't know, but like she just brings the whole <laughs> the whole dorm co-ed dorm floor with exactly. her. Exactly. Right. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. It's so funny. I I don't know. But you know, what what this discussion, this movie and this episode is very helpfully reminding me of is why I decided to go into the academic study of theology in the first place. Um, Because I like that theology, uh, you know, sort of brings God down to earth. Uh, You know, the basic definition of theology is talking about God, right? And so when you're talking about God, how would you talk about God? Well, people might say, you know, oh, well, through the scriptures or, or the dogma, but it's really in how people... Uh, you know, connect with each other. And that's where you're going. It's the human experience is where I believe God is dwelling. Um, and so I think what I like about going into theology, uh, going into theology as a, as a, um, as a formal study uh, is that uh, uh, through theology, I can see, you know, how God is, dwelling in our lives and how we're responding accordingly or not responding accordingly. I think that um, what I like about theology for me is that it, it, it really separates it's, it really, it, it kind of distinguishes itself from, you know, just being a believer, which is fine. It's fine to be a believer, but we've seen it. We've seen being a believer become so, harmful, you know, especially as us, as us queers, you know, people are saying, well, you know, Leviticus says this and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, you know, here we are the theologians and we're like, well, no, that was actually written like this and blah, 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 mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Um, which of course the critique would be, oh, well, you're being academic about it and God didn't want it that way. Um, but that's not my, that's not my position at all. My position, my position is I am a believer but I want to learn about what God exactly God was saying rather than just taking this, you know, this common translation and saying, oh, that's what God was saying. And I don't yeah. think it means I have any less faith in God in order for me to question. 
No, not and at for, all. For I, anyone to question. That doesn't mean you have less faith. In fact, I believe in a God who wants us to ask questions. I, I do 100% too. And I think that's something we, maybe we should get back into this in a mini-sode or something. Maybe pick some uh, mm-hmm. question, uh, some stories from people that kind of get into this. Because I think this is an important point that I want to give more time to is just like the whole point of theology. There's this term we use in the academic world called contextual theology, but it's yes. probably it's like the acknowledgement that any God talk we do, whether it's theology or whether it's the sacred text, the scriptures is all kind of contextualized in the moment that it occurred or it was spoken or it was written. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. just taking a wide eye, wide lens view of that and saying, well, yeah. what was going on? What was being, what was being talked about? It's not to say it can't be relevant to us today in new right. and different ways than it was to the original community that the theology or sacred text was written, but it's just it in learning how, why it was written in that way and relevant in, to that community. It can deepen our understanding today. Um, Amen. So. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I'm glad you brought up contextual theology because, uh, you know, circling back to, you know, not just Matthew 25, but because, but to why I enjoy doing our podcast, you know, at first, at first blush, right? It, it, it seems like a conceit. Oh, these guys are theologians and they happen to like horror movie. They decided to slap those two together and make a podcast. But for me, um, and speaking in terms of contextual theology, this is, a perfect expression of theology because we're seeing the human presence. Mm-hmm. I'm getting exactly what I want here. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm I'm seeing, uh, you know, you know the, the slashers, the slasher Jason, Michael, you know, who are coming after these people. You know, their lives are being upended, and we're seeing how they're interacting with that and dealing dealing with the consequences and. This might be the most radical statement I've I've made, but you know God is in there too. Yeah. He's in he he's in he's in the horror movies. I and agree. if you have, if you if you you know in our audience, if you have a hard time wrapping your mind around that, just remember that the central at the core of our Christian belief are stories. You know, mm-hmm. and we tell them for remembrance. You know, we tell them, uh, you know, for guidance and these horror movies that we're screening, you know, they're no different from, I would say the sacred stories and some of the sacred stories are even gorier than some of these horror movies. Let's be For real. sure. <laughs> I mean, we get an ax into Jason's head and in the Bible, we get a tent peg into someone else's head. So. <laughs> Which, and, 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 and not only that, I remember I once made the dire mistake of reading um, the book of Judges before I went to sleep. And all the slaughter yeah. in that book made it into my brain. And oh my goodness, I had like the worst nightmares. But in any case, um, you know, that's, that's my theological uh, deep dive is that... Um, and probably also an explanation for those who wonder why I went to seminary in the first place. It wasn't to convert people, um, and it wasn't even necessarily to you know plant a church. I have so many issues with that notion. But that's another. <laughs> that's another uh, podcast altogether. No, it's I. I went into seminary and I decided to pursue theology because I want to see and learn how God is really working in our lives, and it's a very 
it's a very down to earth reason for me. It's not, you know, some kind of a pie in the sky thing. Um, and, you know, also Pace, uh, an academic study of theology is a great complement to, you know, a lot of the field work I already did that I've already been doing since I was a young, a young adult. And theology helps to explain a lot of the difficult circumstances that, you know, seem like they can't be fixed. Um, at any rate, yes, to summarize, <laughs> theology and horror movies. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. And I want to sing the peanut butter and jelly jingle. I, I know you know what that is, Pace, but I don't know if it's copyright protected. Yeah, probably so. shouldn't. We'll, we'll, we'll just <laughs> say they go together like hockey masks and machetes, apparently. Yes, even even better. But I well, also want to highlight the need for funding Yeah. <laughs> so that one day we can get enough funding and we don't have to worry about a little ditty being copyright protected or not. We can just yeah. saying it. No, just kidding. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, I guess we're at the point where we should rate the movie. So how would you rate yep. it? How many machetes and what your favorite kill is, if you have one? Oh, how many machetes should I rate Friday the 13th? I, what, do you remember what I did for the last episode? I think I'll just I'll do six, six machetes out of ten. This is not a terrible movie. This is not a great movie, but you know, it's, it's great to, it's, it's nice to watch. And like I said, it it gave me a lot of theological observations. My favorite kill was the, you know, the arrow to the eye. It just amuses me that, you know, Jason can survive this drowning as a kid. He lives in the forest and, Ooh, well, it turns out he has great aim. Yeah. (laughs) How about you? I don't know. I feel like, okay. So, I would rate this film slightly higher, 7 out of 10 machetes, just because it is so fun. It's not quality cinema in any stretch of the imagination. But yeah. I get 7 out of 10 machetes worth of enjoyment out of it. And it's still one exactly. of my favorite entries to watch. Uh, my favorite death has to be Andy getting chopped in half from oh my to... God neck or whatever (laughs) dick to chest like as he's doing a handstand it's like so graphic Uh and how it was shot in crystal lake memories they explain how there's a camera underneath the plexiglass that he was standing on and then there's Mm -hmm. like a body double with blood so it's just like a whole whole technical shoot to do and it's Uh, it's really cool and graphic that that was you know that was very midsummer like yeah that's the kind of death that you would find in the little swedish cult yes (laughs) Um, so, uh, as far as next movie, we did say, so I'm going to try to get in the practice of this. Any movie that comes out on the first of the month, any one of our episodes, we'll just announce all the episodes coming up for that month. So that way Mm, our listeners know what to expect since we're throwing some one-off films in there. So Mm -hmm. this of course is Friday 13th part three. Um, next week we'll do Friday the 13th, the final chapter. It was not at all the final chapter, but they, they were ambitious when they said it was the final chapter. So that'll come out September 9th. September 16th, we're going to have Eugene Johnson on the show to talk about a forthcoming book. It's going to be a special episode all about this book called Attack from the 80s. So um, definitely tune in for that. And then on um, September 23rd and September 30th, rounding out the rest of the month is Friday 13th, part five, a new beginning and Friday the 13th, part six, Jason lives. 
So a lot of Friday the 13th plus a fun. If you love 80s horror, this book is going to be for you. Like uh, I um, it just sounds so cool. So we'll, we'll give you more information about that as we get closer to the episode. It sounds so exciting. I I can't wait to co-host those episodes, and I certainly hope that our audience can't wait to to listen to all the exciting stuff coming up. Yep, yep. And we'll have, I think, let me just double check. We can cut this out if not. Yeah, I think um, we have a guest for Friday 13th Part 6. I haven't 100% confirmed it, but it looks like that's going to be the case. So um, we'll have a special oh. guest for that episode, too. Um, I am. I'm. That'll be fun. Something to look forward to. Yep. Uh, other than that, I think that's it. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before I do the outro? Yes. Um, yes. The end of the trilogy was not the end of the trilogy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that's so funny that they keep wanting to end it, and then the studio says, "Well, we can milk a couple million dollars more." Yep. Yep. <laughs> well. I guess that's it for our show. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday. Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church, and Twitter at HNACpod for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, if you are shooting a film for 3D... Also, keep in mind what it will look like to a two-dimensional home video release. We don't get these really obnoxious things getting thrown at the screen, clearly meant for the 3D audience, and just looks so bad when it gets to home video release. I I will never forget the eye-popping scene. Literally, it was an eye-popping scene. Yes, it was. That it was. Until right, next time. Yep, bye.